Good morning, everyone. So great to be with you uh, this morning. This is boy, just such a unique passage <laughs> and uh, really a rich one, so I'm excited to dive into it uh, with you all. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll do so. Also, I'm going to move this cord because I am definitely going to trip over that. There we go. All right. Lord, thanks so much uh, for this morning, and thank you for the goodness of, of song and uh, being together in prayer and, and just being together, Lord. We're so grateful. Uh, we pray now uh, that you would help us as we look uh, to your word, that you would build your church uh, today by the power of the Spirit. Uh, we thank you uh, that you work in this way. Uh, so please help us during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. Those famous words were written a hundred years ago by the Irish poet William Butler Yeats in a poem that some of you are probably uh, familiar with called The Second Coming. Uh, Mr. Yeats wrote this poem in the midst of great global chaos coming out of the First World War. Uh, there was a troubling uh, revolution in Russia that was beginning, and there were troubles uh, near to his home as well as there were tensions in his native Ireland and his wife, while pregnant, suffered with the Spanish flu that took so many lives in that great pandemic. Now, Mr. Yates was not a believing Christian. The title of the poem being uh, The Second Coming might throw you off, but if you read the whole poem, you'll see that, that this poem is not an expression of hope, but it's an expression of despair at a world that, that seems to be unraveling. I read an article about this uh, poem, and it was called The Most Plundered Poem in the English Language. And one reason that it is so plundered and quoted, I guess including by me today, is because, yes, you know, things felt chaotic and unstable in 1920, but also because things have continued to feel very unstable and shaky since then, and even now a century later. It's really hard to find stability in the world, whether you look to, to nations or to corporations or even to families and friendships and sometimes even to churches, things fall apart, things tend to unravel. Yeats' poem uh, resonates because it easily could have been written in, in 1920 or today, in 2023. In fact, I read that he purposely kept his words uh, fairly general so that they would apply in different times and in different locations. And just as these words would certainly apply if they were written today, they would have applied at many times in history, including many of the times we read about in the Bible. In the Bible, we see the nations in turmoil again and again, and we often see people suffering in the midst of that turmoil. In fact, the, the section of the Bible we are in, the book of Daniel, we find this to be very true, don't we? In the book of Daniel, we have Daniel and his three friends that are living in Babylon as the result of things falling apart in their own nation. The once thriving kingdom of Israel, a, a kingdom that, that God set up, a kingdom that was, that was long awaited, a kingdom that seemed poised for greatness, and a kingdom that even flourished under, for a season under rulers like King David and for a time King Solomon. But in Israel, things fell apart. The kingdom divided and eventually the southern kingdom of Judah, where, where Daniel and his friends lived, was defeated by the great nation of Babylon. And Babylon itself was the result of other kingdoms falling apart, specifically in their case, the great power of Assyria, who Babylon had defeated in 612 BC. 
And we know from history and even from the passage that, that we just read that, that Babylon was on very shaky ground as well. And because things do indeed fall apart, the future always feels really unstable. And that's one of the really hard things about the human condition, no matter who you are. The rich and the poor, the, the strong and the weak all deal with this. And this includes one of the main characters in this section of the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar. A man with, with so much power, he was leading the, the, the primary kingdom of, of that moment. And, and he very much wants to know what the future will bring, as we see in our passage today. And we'll see as we look at the dream that's detailed in this passage that in many ways, Mr. Yates was right, that things do fall apart. But we will also see that there is a bigger picture and a bigger kingdom, and belonging to that kingdom transforms how we live in the midst of a world that is seemingly always coming undone. We begin today in verse 25. We're going to take this passage, as we often do, in three parts. We'll see the prelude to the dream. We'll see the dream and its interpretation and the response to the dream. So let's look at the prelude to the dream, starting in verse 25. It says, Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and, thus said, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So the first person we hear from uh, in this section is the king's captain, Arioch. Now, I have no idea why Arioch was so confident in Daniel's ability to interpret the dream, but it sure seems like, like he sees this as an opportunity for, for himself to get some standing before the king. Look at the way he speaks to the king. He's kind of taking credit. He says, you know, look at me. I have found a man. I discovered him. I found a man among the exiles who can tell the king what this dream means. And this first sentence with, with Arioch and, and his self-promotion sets us up for the contrast of how Daniel speaks when it is his turn. The king wants to know from Daniel, is this true? And he clarifies once again, as we saw last week with Max, the king wanted to know not just the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. And if he didn't hear those two things, he was going to kill all the wise men and interpreters. And so he clarifies once again, look, I don't want you just to interpret the dream. I want you to tell me what I saw in my dream and then interpret it. And the way Daniel answers tells us a good deal about who he is and why God has him here in Babylon. There's a couple things to notice in Daniel's response. First, in contrast to Arioch and in contrast to most people who come into the king's presence, Daniel is not here to promote himself. He's not here to gain standing for himself. Daniel is here to speak the truth and give the glory to his God. And, and that in, in itself is really impressive, especially 
Because that's not always how it goes when God's people are in the presence of great civil power. Many of you have, have heard of Charles Colson. Uh, he was part of Richard Nixon's inner circle. Uh, he eventually went to jail where he became a Christian. And many years after this, Colson reflected on his experiences in the White House, and, and his reflections are really sobering. He talked about how, how visitors would come to the White House and they would go into the waiting room, and so many of them would talk such a big game about how they were going to get in there with the president and, and kind of tell him, you know, what was up, what was real, what, what we're going to get into. And they would speak the truth and say the hard things. And he saw this again and again for all, from all different kinds of people. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, invariably, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office. But listen to how he continues. Ironically, none were more compliant than the religious leaders. Of all people, they should have been the most aware of the sinful nature of man and the least overwhelmed by pomp and protocol. And that's really why, part of why Daniel shines here in this passage. In the midst of so much chaos, in the midst of a king who was enraged and, and people who, who are panicked because of what the king might do, Dan, Daniel calmly steps into this presence and points everyone to the true God. I've heard it said, and I think it's, it's a good rule generally, when you read a Bible passage, look for the calm person. <laughs> and that's Daniel here. Not intimidated by Nebuchadnezzar because he knows someone far greater. And because this is true, Daniel is able to speak the truth. And th there's a ton of truth just in the first sentence that he speaks. First he says, look, there is no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner who can explain these things. And in saying this, Daniel is, is doing a couple things. First, he's, he is deflecting attention from himself, but he's also saying that all those other people that the king has relied upon, and in fact, the entire system of religion ascribed to by, by the king and the people of Babylon, that, that, that all that was a total sham. Remember, one of the reasons that God brought Daniel and his friends to Babylon was to set up a showdown between the true God of Israel and all the fake gods of Babylon. And remember, the, the true God has already scored a victory in chapter 1 when Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food and yet became healthier and stronger than the others around them. And we're going to see it here again, where the gods of Babylon are actually powerless and mute when it comes to understanding this dream. Instead, Daniel says there is a God who will reveal this and that this dream is about the things that are to come. And Daniel doesn't just talk about the dream. Before he does this, he talks about the king's mentality as he had this dream. We hear in this section that the king's dream came upon him after he had been lying in bed and thinking about things to come. Now, I can very much relate to this. <laughs> and I know some of you can too. I know many of you, when you go to bed, because I've talked to you, you hit the pillow and you fall asleep uh, within minutes or, some of you, even seconds. And I want you to know that I am actively annoyed with you because this is so rarely my experience. All too often, I get into bed, and, and I promise you, this is not an overt choice, usually. But my mind just goes back to the events of the day, and I go over them again and again and again. And when I'm done that, now it's time to go over the events that might happen in the future. I go over them again and again, the things to come. Now, fortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, he did fall asleep, but you see his concerns bleed right into his dream. And Daniel is, is clear about this, that God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream to reveal what is to come. 
And God gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream so that Nebuchadnezzar can understand it. And, and this is something Daniel says that only the true God can do. The true God implicitly is greater than all the other so-called gods. And this message is very, very much deepened by the contents of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. We see that in the next section of our passage, the, the longest chunk of it, verses 31 to 45. It says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all, rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Now remember, it was very important to the king that whoever interprets the dream also state the contents of that dream first. And so this is what Daniel does. He describes this great image. And that word image there, it's also sometimes translated statue. And it is indeed something to behold. You can see why Nebuchadnezzar, I think, was bothered by this dream. It's, it's frightening. It's large. It's, it's bright. It's, it's kind of odd. A, a head of gold, a chest and arms of, of silver, the middle of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. What is going on? And it's actually kind of grotesque, I think, in a way. And some commentators think this is actually part of the point. Uh, one author suggested that this statue is, is kind of a parody of the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. Because remember, God made people in Genesis 1 to do what? To enjoy and to rule over his good creation. But of course, we know Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, they decided to do things their own way. They fell into sin, and the world has felt the effects ever since. 
And ever since Genesis 3, there are plenty of of man-made attempts to recreate what God gave in Genesis 1. And this statue very much represents these man-made attempts. There there may be like impressive in a sense, but there's, there's something off about it. It doesn't measure up to the real thing. It's a mere parody. And the remainder of the dream kind of shows this to be true. This big, impressive statue, it changes materials. It goes from gold all the way to clay. And then it's completely wiped out by this this stone, not cut by human hands. The man-made statue is no match for the not-man-made stone. And the whole statue, no matter what the material, it's destroyed. It breaks in pieces. It becomes like chaff. It's blown away by the wind. Nothing left. Complete destruction. Now, I will say, again, this is quite a dream. It's very vivid. I understand why Nebuchadnezzar wanted an interpretation. And, and you can imagine, it must have been quite a moment uh, for him to, to have that dream that he had spoken back to him. And I think now he understands that, that Daniel has truly been given wisdom and insight, so he's ready to hear the interpretation. And the interpretation starts pretty well for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel calls him the king of kings, that he has the power, the might, the glory, that he rules over all, that he's the head of the statue. He's the head of gold. And the king would have loved to have heard this for many reasons, not least of which we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar loved gold. So for him to be the head of gold would have been, would have been a good thing for him. But notice also that, that Daniel, while kind of exalting Nebuchadnezzar, continues to sort of undermine him in a way. Daniel says all of what the king has is is not because of his greatness or the greatness of Babylon or the greatness of Babylon's gods, but because of Daniel's God, the God of heaven. And he further kind of subverts Nebuchadnezzar's status by reminding him that what he has is extremely temporary. And this is one of the things that not just Nebuchadnezzar, but I think human beings in general, we just continue to struggle to remember this. That just because things are the way that they are now, that is no guarantee of future status. There's a documentary that I've not seen that I, I, I need to watch. I'm interested in it. It's called The Last Blockbuster. Has anyone watched this yet? Yeah? Jason, I thought maybe you told me about it. It's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the story of the final remaining Blockbuster video rental store. Yes, there is still one. In Bend, Oregon. Now, many of you will remember that there was a point that it was almost inconceivable that there would only be one Blockbuster remaining, a point when we all knew that above all else, we should be kind and rewind. Catherine and I, uh, part of the standard courtship ritual of 20 years ago, made many trips to Blockbuster, and it was an important thing to do because you learned a lot about somebody by trying to rent a movie together. It was a good thing. Catherine wanting to rent something called Pride and Prejudice when there's multiple copies of Rocky IV available. We got through it. But it all fell apart for Blockbuster when when these new streaming technologies came along, right? There was an analyst report uh, that was written in 1999 about Blockbuster that actually said, and I quote, investor concern over the threat of new technologies is overstated. Well, no, it wasn't actually. (laughs) And now, ironically, you can watch the last Blockbuster on eight different streaming platforms. Things do not last forever. Corporations, nations, even particular ministries, denominations in the church world. And this was as true for Babylon as it is for us. And because Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are temporary, other kings and other nations are are going to rise up. And Daniel speaks about these kingdoms, and there's a ton of scholarly conversation and conjecture about what each 
kingdom represents. Generally speaking, most say the second kingdom uh, is Persia because Persia would eventually take over for Babylon, the third kingdom being Greece, the fourth Rome. And again, there's a lot of, of conjecture of well, what does Daniel mean about you know, iron mixing with clay and intermarriage. I do not have a great answer uh, for you on that, but really I think it's okay if we don't figure that out because the identification of, of, of which nation uh, is which and what the clay represents, I, I think when we get too far into that, we end up missing the larger point, which is that all of those kingdoms are temporary. That the world in its present state is always going to be in flux. And that kingdoms and ideas and all these other things, they're going to rise and they're going to fall. One of the things I love about this dream and, and really the whole biblical narrative is that it undercuts so much of what we often hear about history. It really undercuts kind of both like the stereotypical progressive and conservative narratives, right? The progressive narrative, narrative often saying that the world will get better and better as we learn and evolve and we're educated, and maybe the conservative narrative often seeking to, to reach back to some time when things were a lot better than they are now. And, and there can be some truth to, to you know, both of those narratives, but neither of them, of course, is total truth. I recently uh, heard somebody quote G.K. Chesterton, the great British author, and he said this, he said, the world is what the saints and the prophets saw it was. It is not merely getting better or merely getting worse. There is one thing that the world does, it wobbles. More than anything else, this dream and its interpretation paint a picture of a world that wobbles. It was wobbling when Nebuchadnezzar was in power. It's wobbling today, and it's going to continue to wobble. But of course, the dream doesn't end with these earthly kingdoms and this man-made statue. It ends with something else. It ends with a stone. And there's a lot to say about the stone. It's a stone not cut by human hands, and it represents a kingdom that God will set up. And this kingdom is different than all those other kingdoms that came before. Daniel says, no, this kingdom will never be destroyed, never left to someone else. There's going to be a successor to Nebuchadnezzar. There's a successor to every leader, be they a president, a king, a CEO, a pastor. But not this king and not this kingdom. The Bible is very clear that it is ultimately God who is the king of this universe and that someday that his kingdom will be fully known and that it will indeed last forever. And Daniel says this has been revealed by the great God. This dream is certain. This is what's going to happen. Its interpretation is sure. Daniel's basically saying, what you dreamed and what I just told you, let there be no doubt. And in a way, you, you can see how, how this dream and its interpretation really is the ultimate answer for King Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember how the dream came about? I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that he was likely anxious about the future. Here he is, the, the king of the known world, early in his reign, and his mind is on what? It's on the uncertainty of things to come. See, he had to know deep down that, that, that what he had was temporary. And yes, being the, the head of gold and the statue he dreamed, that's impressive, but its end is, is the same as everything else, chaff. The dream shows that Nebuchadnezzar has great dignity, but also that's very temporary. It's exalting, it's also humbling. It's very reminiscent of what the Bible says about all human beings, created with great dignity, and yet also always moving from dust to dust. Now we're going to come back to the stone and the kingdom to come. But first we need to see how the king responds to this interpretation. 
So how would Nebuchadnezzar respond? We see that in our final verses, 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. It's so clear when we read this section that God is indeed up to something in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, given what happens immediately after Daniel 2, most commentators agree that this is not the king becoming a true follower of, of, of the one true God. This is likely, though, the king acknowledging the greatness of God and, and putting him in a place of honor, kind of alongside and maybe even above all the other deities that he knew. But even having said that, if we temper it a little bit, it's still very much a dramatic response. And it might be a little bit surprising because, again, Daniel's interpretation was not all good news for him. And the king was very used to, to hearing good news and hearing what he wanted to hear, which is not that different than all of us, right? So it's clear that God is working when the king accepts this interpretation and not only like begrudgingly accepts it, but falls on his face before Daniel, searches for ways to honor him, offering an incense, gifts, and an exalted position in Babylon. If Babylon's gods were real, just imagine how mad they would have been in that moment. And this is consistent with what God has been doing all along with Daniel and his friends. He brought them from Jerusalem to Babylon to subvert and undermine the gods of Babylon. And as we've said before, God is not just winning this battle, he is running up the score. Now, it would have been easy at this point for Daniel to just kind of accept the congratulations and and the new appointment, but he goes before the king also on behalf of his friends, which I think is still pretty bold uh, at this point. No matter what, it was never a small thing to ask the king for favors. And, And Daniel requests that his three friends also be lifted to prominent positions. And indeed they are, with Daniel remaining at the king's court. And so here we have Daniel exalted to a great position, his friends are brought along, and in this way God continues to subvert the existing so-called gods and the existing structure of Babylon. Babylon invaded Judah, but look, it's the young men from Judah who end up ruling over Babylon. What a reversal. (laughs) So as many of you know, and we've talked about today already, today is Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of a week leading up to to Good Friday and Easter. And I think it's really interesting to read this passage in that context, thinking about Daniel in Babylon, but also then thinking about Jesus in Jerusalem. See, just as God brought Daniel to Babylon to subvert what was going on in Babylon, so Jesus on Palm Sunday rides into Jerusalem to subvert what was going on there. Because just as there was so much going wrong in Babylon, false gods, false beliefs, and so on, so there was also so much going wrong in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem at that time was in the grip of Rome, one of the kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about so long ago. And this was a domination that that would last way longer than Babylon ruling over Jerusalem. And not only that, but Even the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the ones who were entrusted with the legacy 
of Daniel and his friends, they had very much lost the plot of God's story. And they were living more like the so-called wise men of the Babylonian court, seeking out power, and in many ways constructing their own man-made rules and their own man-made religion. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he subverts all of it. As we said earlier, he comes in humbly on a donkey, and he enters Jerusalem. And as Jesus is in Jerusalem, something specific comes up that brings us all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's that stone that he dreamed about. Andrew Wilson, in his awesome book, God of All Things, has a whole chapter just on stones in the Bible. And he points out that almost as soon as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he tells a parable. That parable is about some wicked tenants. And it's a parable that really spoke against the religious leaders of the day. And he wraps up the parable by quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118, in part, says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And he goes on to say to those leaders who thought that their position of power was secure, he says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is the stone, and this kingdom belongs to him, not to Rome, not to the religious leaders. And Jesus continues to subvert the Roman rule and subvert the religious leaders by humbling himself and going to die on a cross, dying for the sins of his people, people like you and I. And as Jesus dies on the cross, just as Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the greatness of the God of Israel, so too did a Roman soldier speak these words looking upon Jesus. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And in doing all this, God was establishing his kingdom here on earth. The stone that becomes a great mountain and fills the earth. A kingdom that we, as those who trust him, are very much a part of. A kingdom that we see now imperfectly and in part, especially in the church, but that we will see fully and finally someday when Jesus returns and when his kingdom once and for all supplants every single earthly kingdom. When we consider all this, we go back to Daniel. Daniel living in the chaos of living in exile and of Nebuchadnezzar's panic and of Nebuchadnezzar ready to kill him and everyone around him. And what do we see? We see Daniel calmly giving testimony to God and pointing others to him. Friends, yes, things do indeed fall apart, but that is nothing new. The world is doing what it always does. It wobbles. How good to know that we belong to the true king of kings and that his kingdom is truly forever. What a privilege for us now to live peacefully and calmly in this world, knowing this to be true and holding this kingdom out to everyone around us. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so thankful for your word. It's just so good. And uh, we see your beauty when we read your word. And we are so thankful that you have sent your son so that we could be part of your kingdom, Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you for the way that Jesus comes 
to subvert what was going on in Jerusalem and, and to subvert even the sin in our own hearts. And thank you for the forgiveness that we are offered and thank you especially for all we have to look forward to in the new heavens and new earth, all because of your grace, all because of your mercy. Lord, please help us to know that these things are true. Just as the dream and interpretation were sure, your word is sure and your promises are sure. And Lord, help us to live in light of all these things. And we pray for the many that do not know you, Lord, that we would stand as a pointer to you for them. Help us to do that by your grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.